Um, I don't know when you see the image there. I don't know if you guys even recognize what the reference is there in that. For some of you, it could look like a kind of a gruesome picture of a guy with all these cracks in his body. This is actually building on a, a Japanese art form name known as a kintsugi. Have you guys ever heard of it? Where they actually take broken pieces of pottery and put them back together using gold or silver or something like that to really represent the beauty of brokenness, you know, and to really show uh, a picture of how even in bringing back something that's broken, there could be real beauty in that. And so this morning, I'm going to take this theme of brokenness and apply it specifically to this area of emotional health and see what that connection is. I appreciate those of you who've been asking questions on the Slido app. And so let me just begin, as I said I would, to address some of the questions that were raised. One was, can we only lament to God or can we lament to our spouse, family, or church? I, th I think that's a great question. I think if we try to keep lament to its strictest definition, that it's actually a cry to God, then we could say by definition, it is uh, addressed to God specifically. Um, but I, I would actually, um, one way, two ways I could try to give some more shape to it, though, is to say I think we can lament with others to God. I think corporate lament is actually something really vital. And I don't know, I, you know, the truth is, um, you know, so if you look at scripture, you see passages like Ezra, uh, I think it's chapter two, chapter three, somewhere around there where they're dedicating the temple that's been rebuilt after the Babylonian captivity. And there's this great cheer and this praise that arises because they feel like there's hope for their future. But what it says is among the older people who knew Solomon's temple, there was actually uh, corporate weeping. They were all crying together as they realized this new temple will look nothing like the old temple. It just seems so weak compared to what they used to know. And I think that is an example of corporate lament. Um, I, you know, you guys have lost two pastors uh, in, in just a little over a year's time. And um, sometimes we're trying to analyze, we're trying to problem shoot, we're trying to assign blame even. Um, but sometimes these these things happen in life that there's really no clear person to blame or anything. You just got to look at what would it mean for RCC to corporately lament something like that, to just simply grieve together and say, we've gone through this together. And let's do that, seeking God together. Um, I don't know. I, I, I feel that burden for you guys to see, is there a way that that could be shepherded well, which I hope is already an ongoing process here at ICC, is this idea of corporate lament. Um, what are the ways to respond to or cope with seeming silence of God in the midst of suffering, especially when God is supposed to be a relational being? I think this is arguably the most difficult question of the Christian life. It's philosophically what we call the problem of pain or the problem of suffering or the problem of evil, right? Uh, which is... Um, why does God seem silent so many times in the face of our struggles and in our pain? But like I said, I, I don't know if there's any philosophical answer I can give that satisfies. But one thing I think it just continues to invite us to look at the life of Christ. Because we, I gave a, a much smaller example of the life of David yesterday, who was considered this man blessed by God and anointed. And yet he lived an incredibly difficult life. Um, much of his life not being able to obtain the kingship, but running for his life from Saul, living in caves in the wilderness. And then even once he got his crown, 
Um, not long after that, it was once again threatened by his own son, Absalom, who basically conducted a coup against his own father. And we just see that that was the life of David, one of constant struggle and trials. But I think the life of David was really just looking ahead to the life of Jesus, the Son of God himself, who here is, if anyone should have had an easy life, it should be God in the flesh, right? God should have made him born into royalty, into the king's palace, and lived the life of royalty. And yet God made his own son come into this world in the family of a peasant and lived, again, an incredibly difficult life. And I, I think there's a message here that God is giving us is that something about the struggles and the pains that we experience in life are absolutely by his design to form us into the kind of people that we need to be and living a life that is completely trial-free, suffering-free, cannot achieve the ends to which God wants to shape in us the character of Jesus and the kind of person that he desires us to be. I think within that, though, this idea of hearing God's voice and at least, at least experiencing his comfort is a journey there. It's something that I feel very strongly about, what it means to hear the voice of God in the midst of our pain. And that's not an easy one either. But what I would argue is that a lot of that is not, God is not there, but we just live such busy, noise-filled lives that there is just that no, no space for God to speak into our lives. And I think a great example of that is Elijah on Mount Carmel when he was at the height of his success defeating the priests of Baal, and yet it became one of the lowest points of his life when he was just running away from Jezebel who wanted to kill him. And God needed to take him into Mount Horeb and get him in solitude and away from everything. And then what does it say? He comes in this, uh, he brings this fire and the strong wind and everything, and it says God was not in any of those dramatic things. And then he comes in this gentle wind, and it says that God was in that whisper telling Elijah, here I am, I am with you. And I think that is always the invitation of God in our lives, is you will hear my voice when you can still your heart and be still before me. But when your life is filled with constant noise and podcasts and Netflix and one event after another, and you say, where is God? Where is God? The truth is he is there, but we just have such a noisy heart that we have no space for him to hear him in that, in that quiet whisper that he speaks to us. Um, has God ignited any new dreams in your heart after the chapter of Africa came to a close? Um, it's interesting, but as exciting as that time in Africa was, uh, like I said, starting this HIV AIDS ministry, uh, starting a nursing school, and there was just so much going on there. Um, as exciting as all of that was, what those years in Africa taught me was as well how important the local church is to the kingdom of God. Um, I was trying to build God's kingdom through this format of a hospital. And it was great. It was exciting. And yet I saw the limitations of a hospital, hospital ministry in the ability to do true discipleship. And what it caused in me was a real yearning to get back to the local church and to realize that what happens here in a congregation like yours is absolutely vital to the kingdom of God and what you are building and establishing as a community of faith and so as much as I love my missionary work in Africa, uh, there's such a joy in my heart to return as a pastor now to his kingdom work expressed through this idea of pastoring a local church. And so it's very easy to look at the local church and say, hey, what are you guys doing here in your little corner of Naperville? And are you guys really making an impact or something like that? But I am absolutely convinced that the heart of God's kingdom lies 
in the local church and what we are doing in each of our communities like that to realize the values of his kingdom uh, in our midst. And so that's something I'm very passionate about in this season of my life. Um, as I said, please keep the questions coming. And at the start of each worship, I will try to answer uh, as many of them as, as possible. Well, we've been talking a lot about this idea of brokenness. And it's true. It's actually a word that's become very hip nowadays, not only in the church, but outside the church. And I think there are some Christians that could actually feel a bit uncomfortable with this language of brokenness. They say, listen, is this just a euphemism for sin? Like, doesn't the Bible talk about sin? Where does it talk about brokenness and stuff? And it could just like, sound like a lot of psychobabble and a way, our way of secularizing uh, biblical terms. I'm going to say this. I am not equating sin with brokenness, although I think there is much that they have in common, and they're undeniably related to each other. But, um, and, you know, I shared some stories of my broken dream of being a missionary in Africa, uh, shared the story of Sun Chan Ra and the brokenness he experienced in his family life. I even appreciate what Dave shared this morning about uh, stories of his own brokenness. And I think it's so important that we hear these stories so that we really paint the full picture of what we mean when we say brokenness. But let me define it for you right now so that they try to clear up as much fog about why I am not equating brokenness with sin. To be broken is to have a distorted view of God, ourselves, and others, which leads to beliefs, emotions, and behaviors that are destructive to others and ourselves and derails us from God's purposes for our lives. This is not the only way we can define brokenness, but this is the way I define it, okay? Is that at the end result of brokenness is that it causes us to have a wrong view of God, ourselves, and others, which then leads to a ripple effect into the way we end up living our lives that become self-destructive, destructive to others, uh, and on and on. And our brokenness, where does that come from? Well, it very often and probably most so comes from our own sinfulness, the sinfulness that rests within our own heart. But the truth is our brokenness can also be the result of the sin of others inflicted on us. It's not our fault. Like if you were physically abused or sexually abused or neglected and all of these things, that was not something you did wrong. It was a wrong done against you. And nevertheless, it could lead to your own brokenness in your life. And then thirdly, we can say it's living in a broken and fallen world. Just economic hardships, natural disasters, cancer, demonic powers, okay? There are a lot of destructive forces at work in this world, and that can lead to brokenness. Think about the picture that many of us experienced of the immigrant child who grew up pretty much without parents. And maybe some of you, your parents, were working two jobs just to put food on the table. And because of that, they were never home. So you grew up basically like an orphan. And because you grew up like a latchkey kid, you got into a lot of trouble and things you shouldn't have done, right? And you could say, well, that's my parents' fault. But in a way, how do you really blame your parents when they were just trying to survive in a foreign country themselves, it's just this overall brokenness that ended up affecting you and causing brokenness in you. Now, I also want to clarify something 
that the brokenness term can also be used in some positive ways, right? We can talk about brokenness as a good thing. We need to be broken before God. And that's another way scripture itself uses the term brokenness. And the truth is, I think they're very interrelated. Uh, I think a way that we can actually make a parallel to that is thinking about when Jesus was tested by God, but also tempted by Satan, right? In the wilderness, there are evil forces at work to cause our brokenness. But even within all of those struggles, it can lead to a spiritually healthy brokenness, which is I need God and I need to cling to him and I need to seek him in the midst of everything I'm experiencing. And so if you could just stop and just uh, sit on that definition for a moment, maybe you can now begin to give some shape to your own brokenness and the distorted thoughts that just consume your mind. Like, my, a very common one in Asian circles is my worth is determined by my performance. Why? Because that's how you've been treated your entire life. Your approval of your parents depended on you getting good grades or making it into that sports team or whatever else. And so what you've come to realize is my worth is based on my performance. Another expression of brokenness is everyone acts like they care but they just want to use you. That's another common expression of brokenness that I see when I counsel people is everyone acts like they like you or they care about you, but the truth is everyone just wants to use you. If you have been used by somebody and been burned by that, that becomes part of your distorted view of others is that there's nobody that's genuine, nobody that's real. Everyone just is a, is a phony and they're just trying to use you. Here's another one that's very common when I do pastoral counseling. God is always disappointed or angry with me. That's brokenness in our relationship with God, a distorted view of God. For many of us, we just picture, if you just try to picture the face of God, for many of us, he is never smiling at us. He's always just with his arms crossed, just kind of staring at you. And we just feel like when we approach God, we're always doing it with a bit of fear that God wants to strike us or yell at us or rebuke us. Eugene Peterson says this, there is a world of unbelief to diagnose. There are questions to ask and answer. The Christian life involves re-understanding our entire lives and the whole world in light of God's revelation. There is much to learn and understand. What Peterson is saying is this, before you became a Christian, you were already being formed into something by this world. But the problem is that formation was very likely a destructive formation. In other words, you were given a view of life and this world through secular eyes, through eyes that are godless. And when you become a Christian, a huge part of what discipleship means is to basically relearn everything through the lens of faith and to learn how to see this world as God sees it. And so what Eugene Peterson is saying is, There is a lifetime of learning that has to take place of basically undoing all the malformation that happened in your life before you met Jesus and to basically re-understand our entire lives and the whole world through the lens of faith, through the lens of the gospel. Okay. Now, I'm going to show you a couple videos today. And the first one that I, and they're both coming from the same documentary on uh, this person named Jane Fonda, actually. Does anyone... I bet you none of you know who Jane Fonda is, do you, right? You guys are too young. Okay. Who, who knows who Jane Fonda is? Okay. I feel a little comforted by that. All right. 
Um, she was, in a previous generation, probably one of the most famous uh, Hollywood actresses, right? She's still alive, although she's pretty old now. Uh, and despite the amazing success she achieved as a Hollywood movie star, um, she actually lived a very sad life, personal life, a life filled with tragedy and struggle. And it all centered around her desperate need to find love, to receive love. Because the person that she wanted love from the most was her father, Henry Fonda, who was also uh, an equally famous movie star in his generation. And throughout her entire life, she sought his approval. And she never got it from the time that she was a young girl even into her adult life. And the first clip I want to show you is her attempt to find love from her father by this movie that she made called On Golden Pond. Is there a way we could improve the audio, actually? Sorry. Let me pause this. This maxed out. Oh, oh, lower it? Lower it? Okay. Yeah. It's less. It's just this. Try again. <clears throat> a pretty tragic, heartbreaking story, isn't it, that she tried to gain her father's approval her entire life, and now that she gained success as an actress, she does something insane. She actually buys a movie and produces it because it mirrors her own family brokenness so closely. Then she casts her own father in the role of the father, and she plays the daughter, and she is just she, she just orchestrated this entire thing just to, in the hopes of having a moment with her father that's real, that's emotional, and so she just reaches out in an unscripted moment and touches his arm, and she sees this tear come down his eye, and she just grabbed onto that, and to us it could look like, what's the big deal? Like, that's like nothing, but when you hear the cry of a daughter, that's basically, I think what Jane Fonda is saying is, do I mean anything to you? Like, can I even stir an emotion out of you? to show that I matter to you. And by seeing that singular tear come out of her father's eye, I think what that told Jane Fonda is, I matter to my dad. I mean something to him. That is actually a very sad picture of brokenness, isn't it? Um, we are all seeking love in some ways. And in a way we could say this is all brokenness leads back to the road of love. It is our search for love that causes the brokenness in us. The problem is it just feels too risky to tell others what we need from them. And so we go through much of life 
never expressing these things to one another, of the ways that we hurt each other and the things that we're seeking from one another. Todd Henry talks about this moment when he was sitting on a couch in his study and this big spider emerged. And he does not like spiders. And this thing was very nasty looking. And he freaked out and he killed it. And then this is what he said. Every single day after that, when he would sit on that couch, he would basically pull all the cushions off the couch and check to see if there was another spider on there. And he literally did this for years before he realized he never found another spider in that couch. And he thought of all of the time he wasted pulling off those cushions in case a spider would emerge. And why I share that story is this. Negative experiences in our past tend to have an undue power to shape how we approach future experiences, don't they? When you have been hurt in the past, it can scar you in such a way that it affects the rest of your life. And you basically say, I will never let that happen to me again. Never. I will not be fooled. I will never be the butt of that joke again. And you will often do crazy things to avoid something happening like that in your life again. And that is part of our brokenness as well that we need to learn how to emerge from. We can give undue power to the negative experiences of our past. The next point that I want to make is this. We cannot be spiritually healthy unless we can honestly acknowledge and confront our brokenness. Where are those distortions about God and yourself and others that lie buried deep within your heart? Unless we can unmask those things and reveal them and expose them, we can't really move towards spiritual maturity. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And what Keller is getting at is we don't truly grasp the depth of grace that God gives us until we also understand the depth of our sinfulness and brokenness. And that's a work that God must do in our hearts, something we looked at yesterday. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is part of the discipleship journey, is asking God, show in me what I cannot see in myself about my own distortions and brokenness. Marjorie Thompson writes, if we cannot see our, how our minds and hearts actually operate and how they resist the things that make for health and peace, we will not be able to admit what alienates us from God, others, or ourselves. What we cannot acknowledge, we cannot confess. And what we cannot confess, we cannot present for forgiveness and healing. When we release pain and anger to God over people who seem impossible to embrace with love, the Spirit begins a mysterious process in our hearts. God reveals to us the enemy within our own divided self, the wounded, scary aspects of ourselves we have tried so hard to ignore, the sides of us that are humiliating to admit. Each of us secretly harbors despised parts of our own personality, impulses and reactions we are ashamed of, jealousy, greed, rage, self-pity, the need to be right, the desire to win, 
the exhilaration of feeling superior. This is the journey that all of us are on, of uncovering these places in our heart that we can then bring before God for healing and say, God, I need healing from this because it's affecting my marriage. It's affecting my parenting. All of these things that I was trying to escape from have caught up to me. And what I want to say is this, is none of us sees ourselves accurately. I mean that at so many levels. One of the things that was shared in the men's fellowship last night was that one of my hobbies is photography. I love taking pictures. And there was this interesting experience that I had to learn as a photographer was I would take pictures of events, like a church event or even a, an extended family birthday party or something like that, and then I would share the pictures with everyone. I'd download them and share them, and we'd go through the pictures together. Everyone's having a good laugh, but I was always shocked at how much people hate the pictures of themselves, you know? And the truth was, as a photographer, it actually hurt me a lot because I thought, that's a good picture, you know? Like, the focus is right, the composition is right, the exposure is right, and yet they're like, ew, delete that, delete that. Everyone's wanting to, like 90% of their pictures deleted. And at some point, I had to realize it's not about my photography skills. It's that everyone hates themselves, you know? <laughs> that the truth is, when you take a selfie, you totally control that image, right? But you still have to take 50 of them before you find the one that you really think accept. But what I realized is this, even physically, nobody sees ourselves as we really are. And that's why when somebody else takes a picture of you in a candid moment, you are genuinely shocked. I do not look like that. That is not me. Am I that fat? You know, all of these things going, do I really look like that? Because none of us see ourselves as we truly are. We see a projected image of ourselves when we look in the mirror. Now, if that is true physically, Imagine how much more so that is spiritually when we think about what is inside us. And let me say this. The mirror to your spirit is your relationships, okay? The mirror that most accurately reflects who you are on the inside is your relationships. And that's kind of frightening to think about because I know a lot of you struggle in relationships with others, and it is so easy to blame the other person. I'm easy going. I'm easy to get along with. You're the problem, you know? I don't know what's wrong with you. But the point is, what do our relationships actually reveal about ourselves? Walter Wengerin writes this about marriage. In mirrors, I see myself. But in mirrors made of glass and silver, I never see the whole of myself. I see the me I want to see, and I ignore the rest. Mirrors that hide nothing hurt me. They reveal an ugliness I'd rather deny. My wife is such a mirror. When I have sinned against her, my sin appears in the suffering of her face. Her tears reflect with terrible accuracy my selfishness, myself. But I hate the sight, and the same selfishness I now see now makes me look away. Stop crying, I command, as though the mirror were the fault. I just leave the room, walk away. Oh, what a coward I am. And what a fool. Only when I have the courage fully to look clearly to know myself, even the evil of myself, will I admit my need for healing. Powerful words, aren't they? How often that is true of marriage. What's wrong with you? You are the issue, not me. How many times I see that when I do marriage counseling as a pastor is both spouses are constantly blaming the other person for all the problems 
in the marriage. But what we have to realize is that our relationships are the primary places where our brokenness reveals itself. And so I want to ask you again, do you know the wounds you carry in your life that tell you what you're worth? The truth is, is it possible to go through your entire life and never acknowledge the wounds you carry in your heart? And one of the reasons why I say that is because brokenness has so many disguises. You may be the hardest worker in the church, and everyone praises you for that. You're the person who shows up early and sets up everything. And when everyone else is having fellowship, you're the one cleaning up. And everyone's like, what a servant. But the truth is, you're doing that because underneath that is, this is how people will love me. Or because you don't want to interact with human beings. (laughs) And by cleaning up, it gives you an easy escape from having to deal with them, right? This is what I mean when I say brokenness has so many disguises. When you work so hard and achieve great things, people will praise you. But the truth is all of that might be this hunger for approval to show to others that you are worthy of that praise. It's interesting. uh, Many of you guys know who Francis Chan is, right? And there was this moment when he came to this revelation in 2006 when he turned to his wife, Lisa, and he was pastor of a megachurch in SoCal and Simi Valley at the time. And this is what he said to his wife in 2006. If Jesus had a church in Simi Valley, I bet you mine would be bigger. I bet you if the Apostle Paul had a church, mine would be bigger. In fact, I bet you people would be leaving their churches to come to mine. Now, that's kind of messed up, isn't it? Listen, Chan was not saying this to boast. He was saying this as a confession because he really meant it. He said, I really think people would be leaving Jesus' church to attend our church. Why? Because he's saying there's something about the way we're doing church that doesn't reflect the heart of Jesus. We know how to attract crowds. We know how to get feet through the door. And it was in this revelation, actually in 2006, that in the height of his success in ministry, success, Francis Chan walked away from that megachurch to go over to Asia as a missionary for a while and then be kicked out of Asia and eventually end up in the Oakland area where he's doing a much more toned-down ministry with his home fellowships and things like that. But what, what this tells us is that even in church life, there is so much brokenness disguised as success. What is it that you as RCC is trying to achieve? What is success? What is the win here? There is so much of even ministry motivation that could be driven by brokenness rather than genuine wholeness that comes out of a healed heart. And I'm going to say this, as I began to allude to yesterday, is one of the ways we begin. So you're, you may be thinking, okay, I'm tracking with you. I, I, I say amen to everything you're saying, but how do we make any headway with this? And I'm going to return to something I addressed last night in my talk about lament. And it is the gateway of our emotions, our emotions. One of the ways that we access our brokenness, and probably the best way we access our brokenness, is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life, exposing to us what we can understand in terms of our emotions. In other words, our emotions always give us a way. It is 
Peter Scazzaro says it is impossible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Many are supposedly spiritually mature, but remain infants, children, or teenagers emotionally. They demonstrate little ability to process anger, sadness, or hurt. This is one of the most important statements I'm going to make in my talk this morning. Your emotions most honestly reveal what is in your heart. It's like a window into your heart. What I'm saying is this. You may make all kinds of claims about what is important to you, what you value, what your beliefs are. That's great, wonderful. But what I can say is this. If I really want to know what you value in life, what you really believe about reality, about yourself, about others, about God, all I need to do is this. Follow you around for a week and see where emotions arise out of you. That's all I have to do. What gets you angry? What makes you sad? What gets you excited and joyful? What gets you anxious and afraid? When I see those things, that tells me everything I need to know about your values, about your beliefs, your convictions. No matter what you say are your stated beliefs and values and convictions. Um, and the truth is this. It's surprising how blind you can be to your emotions. It seems like they ought to be easily nameable by us. But the truth is we all stink at it. Okay. Um, this has happened to me many times where I'm talking with my wife and eventually she said, can you stop yelling at me? And I go, I am not yelling at you. And I realize somewhere in this conversation, my voice has gotten louder and louder and louder until the truth is I am actually yelling at her and I don't even realize I'm yelling at her, right? I know you guys have never done that, but I have done that, okay? You want to know another emotion that I have a very hard time identifying in myself? is sadness. I have a horrible time recognizing sadness in me. It just sneaks up on me. Just one day, I just have a hard time getting out of bed, and I get to work, and I'm just unmotivated. I don't want to do anything at the office. And I'm trying to do sermon prep. I have no motivation to prepare the sermon. And I have these meetings. I have no desire to meet with these people. And literally weeks can go on like this where I feel tired. I'm dragging and go, I need better sleep. I need to eat better. I need to exercise. I'm saying all of this stuff. And then just one day I finally wake up and go, you know what? I actually think I'm sad. You know? I feel like such an idiot to have to acknowledge that. But I go, you know what? I'm sad. Like, that's what it is. Is I'm actually really sad right now. And that sadness has crept into every aspect of my life. This is a really important journey for us to go on. It's to say, what do my emotions tell me about my heart? And if you stink at this too like I do, a great way to do this is just to start keeping an emotions journal. That's a, one of the things I did to develop the skill. It's just, this is, you go, what's an emotions journal? Very simple. At the end of every day, just write down what is the strongest positive emotion you felt and what is the strongest negative emotion you felt and then try to unpack it a little bit and process that. Why was that emotion so strong in me today? And just do that every night at the end of each day. And as you begin to do that, you're going to start to discover your emotional world. You know. Um, listen, we often talk in this language of their thinkers and feelers. And if someone were to put me in one of these buckets, they would put me in the thinker bucket for sure, right? 
And the truth is, I used to think that the person that was better was the thinker, not the feeler, right? In fact, when I looked at feelers, I thought they're just really bad thinkers. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> they're just less capable thinkers. That's why they're feelers. I know, I know, it's so bad. It's so judgy and everything and so biased. But I want you to know how much of a 180 I've done now. I actually sincerely believe that all thinkers are stunted feelers. <laughs> okay, that's, that's what I genuinely believe now because our emotions tell us everything about what we are. Um, Proverbs 24, verse, 4, verse 23 says this, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. God is after our hearts, not our behavior, not our performance. God is after our hearts. That's why our emotions are important is because it reveals what is going on in our hearts. A similar Proverbs 27, verse 19, I love this proverb, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. In other words, your destiny is determined by what happens in your heart. The entire course of your life will be dictated by how you manage your heart well. Share another little story here. This is my son, Luke. He's our third born. And this is when he was around five years old. This picture was taken in Kenya when we were missionaries there. And I show you this particular picture because uh, this was also around the time in his life when he began to experience uncontrollable fear. And as parents, it terrified us. We didn't know what to do. But every single thing made this guy afraid. Um, he... You know, we, we went to this place called the Giraffe Center in Kenya, in Nairobi, and it's pretty neat. You go up on this platform, and you get to feed giraffes. This is a picture of us there. Um, if, if you have never come near to a giraffe, they are gigantic, okay? They look like dinosaurs. Their heads are enormous, okay? But you, you're, you're given these alfalfa pellets, and you get to feed them, and it's really fun, actually. Uh, it's cool touching their leathery tongue and everything. And so all our kids were feeding the giraffes. Even our little daughter, Bethany, was only like three years old in that picture. But here is my son, Luke. Do you see him in the corner there? And this was just one more expression of his fear consuming him. And for Betty and I as his parents, we were so bothered by it. And we were like, we are going to use this as a teachable moment for him that there's nothing to fear about. And so we tried everything to get him to feed the giraffe. They will not bite you. There's nothing to be afraid of. I hate to say this because it's really shameful for us, but we try to shame him into it. Look at your little sister can do it. What's wrong with you? You know, are you a baby? <laughs> like we, we used every tool in our tool belt to try to get this guy to feed this giraffe. And he would not do it. We came to America on home assignment and went to Great America. And we went to the kitty part where you ride the little uh, ladybugs. <laughs> this is for like two-year-olds. He would not get on that ride. And we spent like 30 minutes insisting he had to ride that ride. And he wouldn't get on it. And we thought like, what can we do? What can we do to fix this kid? Because as parents, we thought if we don't fix this, He's going to become an adult that's afraid of everything, too. 
this, this shows the power of emotions and the fact that you cannot, by brute force, change it. Um, everyone always hates it because they never finish the story. So let me just finish it before I forget. We tried everything we could, and nothing fixed him. But after a couple years, he just outgrew it himself, okay? That's another lesson in parenting. There's so many times we could freak out over the different seasons our kids go through. But the truth is they outgrow a lot of the stuff. And sometimes our attempts to try to fix them can actually cause more problems than, than helping, okay? Um, so some of you kids, tell that to your parents when you go home. And that's a good lesson for parents to learn, okay? Um, listen, this is how it works. Our feelings drive our behaviors. And neuroscience is affirming this more and more. We think our rational minds are making our choices for us. But what even neuroscience is teaching us is the truth is we lead with our hearts. We lead with our emotions. And then truthfully, our rational mind follows behind to often justify the choices we've made based more on our desires and our gut instincts than actually our rational thinking. Okay? And yet at the same and there is this feedback loop that's often involved as well, is that the more we do something, the more it reinforces those feelings. And so it just keeps going in a feedback loop, like our fears. Our fears cause us to avoid certain things. And the more we avoid certain things, the more we think, I dodged a bullet. And it just reinforces those fears. And it just keeps going around and around and around in this deadly loop. And like I said, you cannot brute force yourself to overcome your emotions. You cannot will yourself to be happier. You cannot will yourself out of a depression. So then this just feels like fatalistic, doesn't it? It's a trap. There's just no hope. But what I would argue is what can overcome all of that is our thoughts and beliefs. We can actually train our hearts to feel different things by what we actually believe about life and reality and God. That's what has the power to change our feelings, is to take our stated beliefs and make them actually into true beliefs that we really believe. Um, Let me give you an example of this if you don't believe that. Let's say, um, let's just use Dave as an example. Let's say Dave and I are walking along the street. We're just having a pleasant conversation. And then for no good reason, I just out of the blue just decide to take Dave and just shove him to the ground as hard as I can. And he's a big guy, so he's going to take a lot of force, right? He's not going to go down easily as a running back, but I shove him to the ground, and he comes tumbling, and he's all scratched up. He's bleeding now, and he looks at me, what the heck, you know? And what would be the emotion that he's feeling right then? It's not hard to vary. Probably, probably one is surprise and confusion, but then immediately after that would be what? Anger, right? He would feel an intense sense of anger, like, wow, that's really messed up, man. Why did you do that? But imagine if I just pointed toward another direction and there was an oncoming car that was about to hit him. Now, do you see that piece of information will immediately change his motion of anger into what? Gratitude. All because what he thought was reality was not. And suddenly, he saw things in a completely different perspective. He's not going to go, oh, I'm so thankful you saved my life, but I'm still so angry at you. <laughs> like, No, that anger will literally dissipate instantaneously 
into gratitude. That's the power that belief has in shaping our emotions. And that is the goal of discipleship. How do we actually truly embrace beliefs that affect our emotions? Where you say, I don't need to worry because I know that God is with me in every situation. That's a real belief that gives me a calm spirit and helps my anxieties. Or to say, only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings of my heart so that I don't pressure my spouse to satisfy all my needs, right? Or I don't need the approval of people at work to make me feel that I'm worthy or whatever success I achieve in my career. When you actually genuinely believe these things, your emotions will follow along those beliefs. That's the goal of Christian meditation, taking these truths of God and drilling them so deep into our heart through song, through worship, through reading of Scripture in our quiet times, that these truths become operational in our hearts. I began the seminar by talking about the struggle with Jane Fonda and her father, Henry. I want to show you another clip from that documentary that turns the lens now in her relationship with her mother, who she always despised because the way she framed it as a young daughter was, I want to be on the winning team, and my dad's the winning team, and my mom is the loser because her mom struggled with mental health all of their life and was even institutionalized uh, for much of her childhood. And so watch her journey into discovering who her mother really was before we go on.
interesting that for much of her life, she um, hated her mother, saw all the things that her mother wasn't. And it wasn't until she could actually see her mother as a human being and as someone who herself had gone through so much brokenness in her life that she could understand why her mother ended up inflicting the wounds on her that she had done. The Bible speaks a lot about this, about intergenerational sin and the way that our brokenness just gets transferred from one generation to the next. The things that our parents experience inflicted on us. And then we end up, if you are a parent, you know this feeling of, I said I would never do these things. And yet you find yourself doing the very same things with your children that your parents did with you. When you look at the family tree of King David, we see that a theme in it was the sexual sin of David committing adultery with Bathsheba, taking many wives as well. And then his eldest son Amnon would end up raping his half-sister Tamar. Then David's son Solomon with 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then Solomon's sons Rehoboam with 18 wives and 60 concubines. It's hard to call this all coincidence, isn't it? There is something that is happening in this family that is being handed down generation to generation. Abraham, you could say, was all about deception and lies. Abraham lies twice about Sarah not being his wife. Isaac and Rebekah's marriage is filled with lies and trickery. Jacob's life is filled with lies as well. And then Jacob's sons lie to him about what they did with Joseph when they intended to kill him. What I'm saying is this. We all carry this baggage of intergenerational sin, of things that are family secrets that we don't talk about very openly, family dynamics. And the question is, can the gospel truly break through some of these things? Dallas Willard writes, at the heart of our own identity lies our family and our parents in particular. We cannot be thankful for who we are unless we can be thankful for them. Not certainly for all the things they have done, for they may have been quite horrible. And in many cases, we must come to have pity on them before we can be thankful for them. I want to say this. Much of my adult counseling as a pastor in the Chicagoland area, it's crazy to me, but it's, it's amazing how much goes back to parenting issues and stuff like that, of issues that even adults are still, still dealing with about struggles that they've had with their parents even many years have gone by. And I think this is where the church has to step in. Peter Scazzaro says something so powerful. He says, the local church becomes the place where I am in a very real sense reparented. We all come into the family of Jesus with broken bones, wounds, and legs shot up in the war of life. God's intention is to heal our brokenness and patch up our wounds He allows the scars and weakness to remain. We are then to go out and heal others as wounded healers. I love that idea that the church is in a very real way to be its own family where we learn how to be reparented in all the ways that your own biological family may have messed you up or confused you or caused brokenness in you. The hope is that the church is the one place where we actually learn what healthy family relationships ought to look like. And I think the Bible is filled with this type of metaphor. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, 
and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul is building on this family metaphor and saying the way you are to relate to one another is like a family, treating each other as you would if you were flesh and blood in the intimacy that you're experiencing with one another. Let me just close with this, and then we'll get into some time, a small group here before we break out. At the heart, like I said earlier, of this struggle with brokenness is our seeking of love. And the problem with love is that love seems so imperfect. It is the imperfect expressions of love or broken love that often cause our brokenness so that the truth is we can get to that place in our life where we don't trust love. It doesn't feel like a solid enough foundation on which to build relationships and a life. But the healing ultimately that God wants to bring into our life is through his love. Because what God says is, the reason why my love can heal your brokenness is because my love is perfect. God's perfect, unfailing love heals us from the brokenness caused by all the imperfect loves of a broken world. And that's ultimately how the gospel heals our brokenness. Much of the journey of faith is learning how to trust in the love of God that he holds out to us through the words of his scripture. Let me just close with this um, series of parables Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 15. He teaches a series of three parables about something that's been lost. And in the first parable, a sheep wanders, leaving 99 sheep to rescue one sheep. In the second parable, a woman loses a silver coin among 10, and she turns the house upside down looking for that lost coin. And the third most dramatic story is the story of a lost son who demands his share of the inheritance and then squanders all of his money then ends up feeding pigs that were considered unclean animals. And despite everything that this son did, the father never stops scanning the horizon looking for his lost son. Here's the thing that I want to say about these three stories. We think that the remarkable part of the story is this crazy search for that which was lost. But that's not actually it. Um, in some ways, the search is kind of understandable. But in almost every one of Jesus' parables, he throws a curveball where the story should go one way and it goes and takes a really weird turn that nobody's expecting. And the turn in these stories is not that each of these persons sought what was lost. The weirdness of the story is what happens once what was discovered was found. The shepherd calls together all of his friends and throws a huge celebration because they found this one sheep, which to a Jew in those days would have made no sense. But what's even weirder is this woman who found her lost coin invites the entire neighborhood to have a party because she found this lost coin. Imagine if I invited all of our CC to my house to a banquet and fed you steak dinners. And I gathered you and said, oh, yeah, I know you're probably thinking it's because I spoke at your retreat, but that's not it. And then I held up a quarter and I said, I found this in my couch the other day. And I'm just so excited that I decided to throw a banquet and invite all of you to it. You would go, what the heck is wrong with this guy, you know? What is this? 
But the third story is the most disorienting. Because the son has done everything imaginable to destroy his relationship with his father. He has burned every bridge. In so many ways, this kid cannot come home again. He, in essence, spat in his father's face, humiliated him publicly, probably stunk of pig. And yet after that, the father embraces and kisses him and throws a party in his honor. And the celebration doesn't make sense. And Jesus points out that the celebration doesn't make sense by adding another character in the story, which is the older brother, who comes and says, what's going on here? This is messed up. This is not right. This is so unfair. This kid does not deserve a party like this. And what Jesus is trying to say through these parables is, that's the part of the heart of God that you guys just don't understand, is how much God rejoices when a single sinner comes home. And you think that God is picturing you as an angry judge. But he is looking at you with eyes of love and the unbelievable joy that fills his heart when he thinks about you is something that you just simply don't understand. Isaiah 49 puts it like this. Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Zephaniah chapter 3, 17. The Lord your God is your, in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. We're all invited into this journey of brokenness to uncover all the ways in which we've been wounded and hurt by others who maybe in their own way have attempted to love us. And yet in the imperfection of that love and the brutality of the world in which we live, we all bear some scars. But the hope of the gospel is to encounter by faith the true love of God that alone has the power to heal every wound and make us whole. Dear God, that is my prayer for RCC in all of the wounds that have been inflicted over these years, that what they might experience through it all would be the anchor of your love. Lord, whatever distorted ways we have come to view you, as one who is always disappointed with us, one who we're always striving to please, but it feels like it is never enough. Give to us the eyes of faith to see you as you truly are, to know that you exult over us and rejoice over us and that all heaven is rejoicing at our homecoming. And give to us the faith to embrace that view of love, that that love would heal the deepest wounds within our lives as we pray all of this in Christ's name.